BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Here's where we start today, and I want to get your take on this too. We start today on the resurgence of the oil and gas lobby. Yeah, you thought the fossil fuel industry was dead? No freaking way. They rule in the Trump administration, folks. Now, as we get into this, I, I got to tell you, I got a thing about oil, big oil companies, okay, uh, about the fossil fuel industry. And now I know my daddy had a gas station, and I pumped gas for with him. So, you know, in a sense, I come from big oil. Yeah, but my father wasn't making much money running a little gas station up in Delaware City, Delaware. But I've been against these big oil companies ever since I've been involved in politics, particularly since on environmental politics, for a very simple reason. Because they are the number one polluters of the environment. They don't give a damn. They just care about the bottom line. Uh, they have destroyed many beautiful areas of this country. You know, I'm from California with the oil spill in Santa Barbara and the oil spills all up and down the coast. Um, and I've, been, I've fought them politically um, ever since I've been involved in politics. I even led an initiative campaign in California to tax the profits, excess profits of the oil companies and put that into uh, mass transit, public transportation. Uh, so I've taken on the oil companies for a long time. So I just want you to know, I want to acknowledge I have a certain bias when it comes to the oil and gas industry. But we thought that they're, and, and of course they ruled this country at one time. After the railroads, it was the oil and gas industry. And we thought that their power lately had diminished a little bit. After all, um, most Americans, I think, recognize, and even politicians recognize, we have to move away from fossil fuels. They're running out anyway. Um, they are dirty. They pollute the environment. Yeah, it's it's uh, they, the oil chieftains don't really care about clean air and clean water. All they care about is the bottom line. Uh, and so we're moving away from that, particularly under the leadership of President Obama, and we're moving more into renewable energy sources, uh, more into solar, more into wind, into conservation. All kinds of exciting things going on. New cafe standards for cars that get us up to like 55 miles per gallon. I mean, really making a lot of progress and, and seeing the decline of the oil and gas industry. Well, guess what? That is reversed already. Donald Trump has put the oil and gas lobby in charge of his new administration in many specific ways. I mean, look at his appointments. Number one, Mr. Oil and Gas himself, the head of ExxonMobil, as our next Secretary of State. And you say, well, that just has to do with treaties and stuff like that. No, no, no. John Kerry was the principal architect of the Paris Climate Accord agreements. So in this age of globalism, globalization, rather, you know, um, it's not just the United States taking care of our little corner of the planet in terms of protecting the environment. We're all working, working together uh, worldwide 
uh, to, to save the planet. And, and Rex Tillerson, oil man, is now going to be in charge of those efforts. And then he's backed up by Scott Pruitt, the new head of the EPA, he comes right out of the fossil fuel industry. As Attorney General of Oklahoma, he has fought for them. He has sued the EPA. We've talked about it. He's a climate change denier. Uh, he's going to try to reverse everything EPA has done, particularly on the, uh, the new regulations for coal-fired power plants. And then on top of that, you've now got um, this guy Ryan Zinke, congressman from Montana, who's Mr. Coal, uh, been honored and received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the coal industry in Montana. He's going to be the new Secretary of the Interior. He's all for drilling on public lands. And then on top of that, you got Rick Perry as the new Secretary of Energy. Uh, and Rick Perry, of course, Mr. Texas, Mr. Oil and Gas. So right down the line. And what can we expect? And on top of that, you know, you got Donald Trump, who doesn't come from the oil industry, but has put these people in charge. And, you know, he's laissez-faire, Mr. Big business, let them do whatever they want. So you, we can expect a full onslaught against every th all the progress we've made over the last eight or ten years. A full, full onslaught meaning reversing the Paris Climate Court agreements, probably rolling back the, new ca the cafe standards on new cars and trucks. Keystone Pipeline, you bet it's going to come back. Uh, this Dakota pipeline, you bet that latest decision of the Corps of Engineers is going to be reversed un un under these guys. Um, uh, any, any, anything to do, clean air, clean water, uh, new regulations, all this protection which, which uh, President Obama was able to get through uh, EPA or through the Congress uh, are going are gonna to be reversed. It is, uh, and, and that means also new drilling. New dr There's a ban now on drilling up in uh, certain very sensitive areas of the Arctic. Forget about it. They'll be going up there full speed ahead. A ban on drilling all, all down the west coast of the United States, from Washington State all the way down to San Diego. Forget about it. They're going to try to get in there and, uh, and reopen that drilling. I think the new Attorney General of California, Javier Becerra, will fight them every step of the way. So will Governor Jerry Brown, of course. But they'll come after it. Same thing on the east coast of the United States and same thing in the Gulf. You know, that deep water drilling, which has been more restrained since the big BP blowout. No, these guys are just go full, full speed ahead. It is going to be absolute blank check, absolute green right for oil and gas development and coal and mining in this country under the leadership of these guys. And, of course, behind them all, you've talked about oil and gas money. The Koch brothers, the Koch brothers, that is their agenda. And we've talked about that before, too. But when you hear the Koch brothers giving all this money in politics, they're not doing it because they want good government. They're doing it because they are the biggest fossil fuel company in the world. And they want, I mean, Charles Koch has said that. They want to do away with EPA. They want to do away with the Department of Interior. They want zero, they want to do away with all government regulations over the oil and gas industry. That's why they have pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into Republican campaign coffers, and they are finally going to get their day. And they're behind every one of these politicians. Uh, so I'm telling you, this is, this is the bad news. And, of course, climate change. Is, overall is going to be the big loser because you've got Donald Trump, the climate denier in chief, now surrounded by Rick Perry, climate denier, 
Ryan Zinke, climate denier. Uh, I'm forgetting the thought. It's Scott Pruitt, climate change denier. And Rex Tillerson and his position, people say, well, he can't be so bad because he thinks that he, he's not for repealing the <laughs> Paris Climate Change Agreement. Yeah, but <laughs> this is ExxonMobil, who until I'm not sure about that. We don't know the fi- haven't seen the figures for this year. But in ExxonMobil's l- last report, which came out in July, through night through 2015, they were still the chief funder of climate change denial organizations like the American Enterprise Institute and the American Legislative Exchange Council. So um, Rex Tillerson's position actually on climate change when he was asked about it is, he says, it's not a serious problem, it's just an engineering problem that we can fix. That, that's, that's how he dismisses the whole thing of climate change. So I'm telling you, uh, if you care about the environment, you care about clean air, you care about clean water, this is going to be a very, very dangerous time. A man who is leading Bernie Sanders' team and our revolution, chairman of the board of our revolution, our good friend Larry Cohen, former president of the Communication Workers of America, up early this morning and at it. Always up early. Hey, Larry, you're looking good. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is a very exciting time. I mean, our revolution, um, I've, I've said other presidential candidates, some didn't even try. Some have tried to form an organization to continue their agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if anybody can pull it off, Bernie Sanders can, with all the support that he had around the country. How's it going? Uh, great, great. We did a live stream last night with uh, Bernie uh, introducing Keith Ellison, running for Democratic Party chair. 200,000 people watched. Uh, That's great. We did it at the American Federation of Teachers, packed room. Uh, very exciting, as you said. You know, sobering time on the one hand uh, with mo- what might be the worst president ever. But on the other hand, um, uh, it's a time to stand up and fight back, and people are doing it. So Bernie had, what, something like 8 million contributions from 2.5 million contributors, if I recall. Is that the yeah, right? Yeah, that's close. 2.5 around, around, the, the, million contributors, $250 million. Yeah. I'm not sure the number of contributions, but yeah. But how, so I was just wondering about with this vast, vast support that he had among yep. the American people, um, uh, are they, have they now like are signed up for our, our revolution? Continuing uh, to... They have not all signed up, shockingly, but, yeah. but uh, you know, <laughs> many have signed up. Lots are active. Uh, over 600,000 signed petitions so far for Keith Ellison which we will split up by states. So, for example, 100,000 from California alone. Mm. And we'll say to the state party chair, okay, which side are you on? You're yeah. going to stand with 100,000, and it'll grow quickly. 100,000 yeah. or more people, are you going to be part of the old guard just following along the W. Wasserman Schultz trajectory as Democrats plunge into the basement across the country? All right. So you're, you're, you've touched on both things. I want to ask you about two big issues, uh, and they're related, obviously. One is, what do you tell... All the Bernie Sanders supporters. How do how do we progressives respond, react to the tr- incoming Trump administration? Number one and two. How do we recharge, rebuild, redirect the Democratic Party? As to say, they're very related. But let's start yep. with what do progressives do about this tr- Trump. You see, I just as I mentioned at the top, appointing all these oil and gas people in charge. Everything we care about, he's got people going in the opposite direction. What do we do? Right. So I think it's a combination of resistance which is you know, somewhat complex. It ranges from sanctuary and actually protecting each other 
not self-defense, I like to say, mutual aid. If we wait and they come for people one at a time, uh, you know, we'll all go down the drain. So what does mutual aid mean? Whether it's unions under attack and unions will get blistered right off the bat here. There's two vacancies on the NLRB. He gets control immediately. Uh, whether it's immigrants, uh, people of the Muslim faith, uh, LGBT uh, or transgender, um, you know, what does mutual aid mean? How do we defend each other? But also stay on offense. What is our vision that we heard in the Bernie campaign? Uh, how do we deal with the worst inequality ever in the, in the richest country in the world? How do we stay on the attack in terms of expanding Medicare, not just resisting cuts, expanding opportunities about higher ed instead of uh, the tr trillion dollars in student debt growing to $2 trillion? So staying on offense, but also not taking our eye off the kind of resistance and, and mutual aid, collective self-defense sanctuary that we will need when he attacks us. And what's the what's where's what's the venue? Is it Congress? Is it state legislatures? Is it local government? All, all, all. So, <laughs> all uh, right. it, it's definitely all of those. So, this notion of sanctuary or building bases around the country is definitely local government. So, even in this election, uh, lots of examples from the Our Revolution ranks: people getting elected. Uh, Chris Schwartz in uh, Blackhawk County Supervisor, or just yesterday, Julie Nitsch. Uh, in Austin, Texas, won a runoff for Board of Trustees, Austin Community College. So I think, you know, there are places like this where we can build out, and those people have great vision in terms of what they can do where they live. But also back here, uh, it'll be more of putting forward an alternative vision like on infrastructure, not, as you said, a fossil fuel infrastructure, which is what Trump will bring, but instead uh, infrastructure based on a, on a green economy. The, the same kind of vision that a Bernie or even a Hillary Clinton uh, would have fought for uh, had they been president. So I think we have to do both. Here's our vision. Keep organizing around on a national level, but on a local level, people can govern uh, in some cities and towns. We should look for those and we should build out. So you're saying that even with Trump in the White House, Republicans in control of the House and the Congress and most governorships, there are still opportunities. Yeah, huge opportunities, you know, all over the country. We have to look for those. And your, your second question, in the Democratic yeah, Party, right. so uh, one of the things that. our revolution is doing is, is uh, uh, helping people uh, take over precinct chairs. So right now in Florida, the deadline is today. Uh, there's thousands uh, across the country of open precinct seats. Basically, you can sign up and you'll be the, the precinct chair. And then you get involved on the county level. So reorganizing the Democratic Party from the bottom at the same time that we fight for Keith Ellison at the top. And we're actually better uh, because of the way the party is structured. I am a, a delegate, a, a DNC member, and have been there for 12 years. But because of the way it's structured, the real path to change is at, uh, is at the precinct level and then the county level and then the state level. And, and then we change the DNC. Hopefully, Keith, we can also elect Keith along the way. As I said, 600,000 people have already signed up for Keith, and we're going to take those names and that support to every state chair. Right. Um, today, it's good that you're here today, because today, <laughs> uh, Keith Ellison, uh, who was the first one out there, certainly the front runner, uh, uh, co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, uh, big supporter of Bernie Sanders. We support Keith Ellison. Uh, but he's going to get a big challenge today. Labor Secretary Tom Perez is going to announce that he's going to run against Keith. Why? Well, that's the question I asked in a column uh, published yesterday. 
why would he run? Because he's certainly not running to say, hey, I'm the more progressive candidate. He's obviously going to run to the right of Keith Ellison. Uh, we want him to own that if he's actually going to announce that he's running today rather than exploring it. Uh, we want him to own why he's doing that so that some of the donors that spoke out against Keith, like uh, Saban, uh, uh, they'll be happy to see Tom Perez. Uh, we're not happy. We don't think the donors like Saban should have much of a voice in this party. They should be like the rest of us, an active citizen, uh, that the amount of money you give shouldn't control the party. Again, I've been on there for 12 years. I'm sick and tired of it. That's what I've seen for 12 years. It's all about finance. It's all about rich donors. It's all about candidates that will fund their own elections. Uh, as Fannie Lou Hamer said, sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's what's wrong with this Democratic Party. Either it changes now or, or it risks a, any kind of viability going forward. Is this a rift between the Sanders wing of the party now and the Clinton-Obama wing? I don't think it's exactly that. Lots of unions. We were at AFT last night where we broadcast. Uh, Randy Weingarten kicked off that event. She was obviously a Big core supporter, supporter of, of, of Hillary Clinton yes, and right. now of Keith Ellison. Uh, the same thing with uh, AFSCME. Uh, and, and most unions are supporting uh, Keith. Um, so so Lee, that's one Lee, example. Lee Saunders, president of AFSCME, Correct. supported Hillary. I think they were the first union. No, AFT was the first. Yeah. But AFSCME was early on with Early Hillary. on, not quite. Uh, right. Uh, and now supporting Keith Ellison. Correct. Right. So, And it's not just the unions. Uh, Chuck Schumer, who was a core supporter of Hillary Clinton, core supporter of um, Keith Ellison, um, Mayor de Blasio announced yesterday that he's supporting Keith Ellison. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who stayed neutral, mm -hmm. supporting Keith Ellison. Uh, there's quite a list. Right. Uh, but I guess you'd have to say, I mean, Perez is a progressive, right? Is it? Yeah. I mean, he, he's definitely a progressive. He's not done grassroots uh, party work in the way that Keith Ellison has. He right. did get elected Montgomery County Council. As I said in my column, uh, he was an excellent labor secretary. But the point is, do we want change or continuity? Obviously, he has to run as continuity. He was a supporter of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Most Democrats abhor the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We celebrated its defeat while he was continuing the campaign for it. So really, it's a matter of uh, visuals. Do we want more continuity? The White House has run that party for eight years. This president's beloved by me and others, but frankly, ran the party into the ground. The DNC is all but dead. Uh, and we need a new DNC. We need a symbol of real change. That's Keith Ellison. All right. Now, what's, let's say we've got Keith Ellison, head of the DNC. What changes do you think we need to see in the Democratic Party to be to reflect more of what you and I think the Democratic Party ought to be all about? Yeah. Number one, not in a symbolic way, but in a real way, open, transparent discussion, debate. No more of the all the way to the top at the DNC level. Again, I've been there 12 years. The only time any of us got to speak is when we literally took the microphone and demanded it. We marched to the microphone and took it over. There has not been one opportunity for anybody to comment on a single thing on the 12 years I've been there. There's been no transparency about the elections. The structure of the party needs to change. I'm the vice chair of what will be starting up soon, the Unity Reform Commission, which is to look at the party. And obviously, I'm on there solely because of Bernie Sanders. It was a convention resolution agreement right. uh, in Philadelphia instead of a floor fight on the rules. But from the rules of the party at the national level, how presidents get nominated to 
how the party operates in Florida, for example, where they're reorganizing now. Disgrace is the only word I could use to describe what's going on in Florida, how they organize. It's totally obscure. No transparency. We need to change that in every state, in every county. We need to say to the ward bosses, your day is over. The people of this country, young people, they need to believe that they can come in and play a role in this party now, not that they wait and wait and wait. How about closed primaries? Closed primaries is another problem. I mean, that that's uh, now you're into a long conversation. For me. <laughs> I know, but, uh, but uh, it's a it's a whole. I mean, yeah, how presidents get nominated is a gigantic I mean, problem. I, I, the New York primary, you had to be a registered yeah, Democrat right. 195 days before the election. 195 days was Halloween, and yeah, it was a scary holiday and <laughs> trick or treat. But that's not the way that the New York primary should run. And young people thought they were eligible to vote for Bernie Sanders all over New York State. It turned out they weren't. Yeah, I forget how many hundreds of thousands of voters at the time. No, I think I don't see how any Democrat, any progressive certainly can defend a closed primary. Well, it goes on and on. The Iowa caucus. I mean, it was basically a tie, but we really won that, the Bernie Sanders side. You couldn't get a count. The count doesn't exist except the state party chair had the count. Uh, of uh, I forget how many, 1,666 caucuses, 99 counties. You couldn't get a count of how many people showed up in any of the rooms. And it was based on those counts that the county convention delegates were then decided. Again, it's a process that you couldn't invent, except we already have it. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Welcome to the program. I think our first visit in studio here, Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty from the great state of Connecticut. Hello, Congresswoman. Nice to see you. Good morning, Bill. Great to be with you. Well, Congresswoman, we know that members of Congress are out of town. You are here in Washington Uh, for a very sad but very important reason. Yesterday marking, believe it or not, the fourth anniversary of Sandy Hook, which is in your district. Um, 26 people killed at that school that morning. Uh, 20 first graders, Mm. which is just still hard to believe. Mm. And how are the families, you were with some of them last night, how, how are they coping? Well, how's the community coping? Well, there's a range. You know, there's a range. It is astounding to me that it's been four years, and I was just newly elected to Congress. You weren't even yet sworn in. Not sworn in. I was with um, a bipartisan group of members um, at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard on our very last day of new member training. We had three weeks of training in various places that last day, and I started my phone started blowing up, and I ended up by noon throwing my stuff in a car and driving straight to the firehouse. Um, and meeting for the first time these people I've now gotten mm. to know oh, incredibly well. And, and, and just to share with you, just the if you think about this time of year, the the voice that really strikes with me, because I could hear from the other room where the governor was notifying families, mm. um, and at that point it was about 4 o'clock. Um, and I remember one mother screaming, she was sick. She didn't want to go to school. I made her go. I wanted to go Christmas shopping. Oh my God. And if I'd let her stay home, she'd be alive now. Oh and God. so you think about what that 
and I don't know which parent that was, but I know yeah. these parents now, and it just, mm-hmm. as, as a mom of three, it's just, it's still shattering to me every time I think about that. And I can't go through Sandy Hook without visualizing that day, what I saw over the next few weeks. Um, so the, the community is incredibly resilient, and, and I think that's important to know. Um, the elected officials, local folks, really stepped up. The religious community people have been unbelievably caring and gracious with each other. So the the hard work they've done together to knit that community back together is remarkable. Mm. And there are national leaders who have really grown out of that uh, group. Some of them directly parents who lost children. Um, some you've seen like Mark Barden, who's worked very closely with the president who lost his son, Daniel. Mm-hmm. And another thing to know is a number of these children were on the autism spectrum. Actually, these are two mm. classrooms that had aides in them, and that's part of the reason there were so many teachers. Um, aides who were helping these children because a number of them were autistic right. or on the right. autism mm. spectrum. So it's a particular heartbreak, in, yeah. and there have been outreach in that community. People have formed family foundations, looking at brain research, for example. The Richmond family, he's a postdoc chemist, and he's given up his work to form a foundation on brain research. Jimmy Green, whose daughter uh, was killed, he's a Grammy-winning recording artist. He has donated songs and sings. So the the outpouring of of positive response is incredible. And and in some ways, the most remarkable thing is that I think it's now six children have been born to these families oh, is that since right? Nanny Hook. Yeah. So when I think, yeah. when people think yeah. it's too hard, we need to give up, yeah. I think if those families sure. can choose to bring new life into this world, having seen the worst face of evil, the rest of us can suck it up and get our jobs done, you know. Yeah. However hard Congress it is, and it, it isn't as hard as what these families deal with every day. And yet they found a way to go forward, and they found a way to be helpful, and they found a way to to look forward to the future. And that, I have to say, that inspires me every day. But what must be frustrating is that there, are, for you and for all of us, is there have been such a positive response outpouring from inside the community and from outside the community toward the people of Newtown and yet no response at all from this Congress in terms of the gun violence. Well, in the House, we haven't even had a single hearing on a single bill, not a single vote, which is why we took to the floor of the House. Yes. You know, my, my colleague right. and actually neighbor of a block and a half away, uh, right. Chris Murphy, uh, got it started with this 15-hour filibuster, and then we in the House were not going to sit by, mm-hmm. and we knew we were breaking rules, but that's sometimes what you have to do. And, yeah. and good our, trouble. Good, good trouble. Tru- as exactly. John as John Lewis it. says, yeah. sometimes good, so you got to like get trouble. Yeah, you got to get in trouble. Got to get in some good trouble. And that was sort of my my grandmother's philosophy too. Was active on civil I rights. The and, families coming down here from Newtown and, and and walking the halls and talking to people and and you just thought that there's no way they can deny those voices. There's no way they can. And, and yet they did. They did. And it's still sort of shocking to me as a matter of humanity. Um, but I am a hopeful person, and I think the rather than getting the change right away at the top, which is what we were hoping for to mm-hmm. push right. push to leadership at the national level, we're clearly going to have to be pushing from the state level. That's what's been happening. Three of the four ballot initiatives in the U.S. in this crazy election in November, three of the four for more gun safety passed. So I think we're going to see it coming from the bottom up. 
And I do believe this is going to change. And frankly, you know, I think uh, Donald Trump has an opportunity and a challenge. It's a it's a Nixon to China possible moment. He says he wants a safer America. He says he's a law and order president. Well, why do you think we're seeing so many deaths in the inner cities and so many shootings of police officers? They're washing guns. You ask yeah. police officers, sure. washing guns. It's not a federal felony to traffic in firearms across state lines. It is to traffic in tainted milk, a mm. federal felony. It is not to take weapons across state lines. That's crazy. Yeah. We know most of the weapons recovered at crime scenes are from a handful of federally licensed firearms dealers. We should shut them down. So I am going to make no, uh, I have no qualms about going to talk to the president-elect or once he's sworn in and said, you ha not only have an opportunity, you have a, an obligation to follow through on these promises. But one of his proudest moments, you know, he talks know. about it all the time, is when he was endorsed by the NRA and yeah. he basically told them, I'm your guy. Anything you want, I'm with you. Well, I'll tell you. It'd be hard to get him to turn. Uh, you're right. The, the, the opportunity is there. Well, I'll tell you. You know, the, the two, uh, in 2013, the NRA, Chris Cox and some other NRA top folks sat at a, in a conference room with me and a couple of other members of Congress writing the legislation on comprehensive background checks. We had them at the table. They used to back this, frankly, mm. until they saw that it might pass. And then they backed away. So this historically, you look at historically, their membership would their support. Their membership them. supports it over eighty yeah. percent. And this is, I mean, seriously, you mm -hmm. want to keep guns out of the hands mm -hmm. of bad guys, out of the hands of people who would hurt themselves or others. And and let's not forget, two thirds of the deaths, talking about thirty three thousand a year, thirty three thousand a year, a hundred and twenty thousand Americans in the four years from Sandy Hook. And Congress hasn't taken any action. Now, if that were Ebola, if that were, look yeah. what we're talking about with Syria, right? And yeah, yet it is normal in this country we do this. It's normal. Japan had six gun deaths. Six. You can count them on two hands in a year. Hmm. Uh -huh. We have a town, the, the equivalent of the town I live in, Cheshire, Connecticut. More people than live in the town I live in gone every single year. We can do better. We, can, we have to do better. It's just it's completely unacceptable that this is considered normal. No other country has this. When you That's so sobering. I mean, if you think about if we were in a war. Right. And we lost that many Americans. Yes. I mean, that we would be in the streets totally. knocking down the doors of every elected official and demanding that this end. It's it. it and Vietnam. I mean, when you put what, it that way, it just blows. You my know, fifty-five thousand in Vietnam over the course of that war. Yeah, yeah. And you look at the trauma, and and yet this happens every single day in America. So we lose twenty thousand veterans a day, almost every single one of them with a gun. Now, what are we doing? Not enough. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. not enough. If this is our yeah. best effort, it's pretty bad, right? We get an to, F. I have to ask you, now you've been reelected twice? Right, just, just reelected. So um, what kind of opposition do you find and face from the NRA when you stand with, with this position on gun safety in your district? Well, I have a big they gun target, district. They target you? I have a big gun district. Yeah. I do. Um, they make guns in my district. I mean, Connecticut was the home of Colt and Winchester. I mean, these are that's part of the core of Connecticut's economy originally actually was arms manufacture. Um, the, ironically, the national sponsor 
of gun shows is based in Newtown. The National Shooting oh, Sports Federation, really? NSSF, yeah. which sponsors almost all the gun shows in America, is based in Newtown, yeah. Connecticut. Wow. Yeah. So, so just think about that. Think just about think that. about that. Okay. So, well, yes, yes, so I do get. Uh, the question yeah, I do they get. They must opposition. come after you. Um, they do. It, you know, they recognize it's challenging, but um, yeah, they they send out mailers and they have been, recruited candidates, and a lot of it's misinformation. So you just squeak through? No, not this time. My first election, yes. Uh, and the margin keeps getting bigger. So I won by 50,000 votes this time. So it didn't work. And I have a lot of support with veterans. But that's veterans. so important to know that people can stand Absolutely. up and be for reasonable gun safety measures and still get reelected. You have to tell more Democrats that, Congress. I do every day. And I'll tell you, having lost my seat in the state legislature over my opposition to the death penalty, a core part of my support right now are first responders, a lot of cops mm. and firefighters who tell me, like, I didn't support you back when you were opposing the death penalty. But you know what? You're a stand-up person. You say what you're going to do. You believe in it. And we want that. We want people who care and who are tough. And that's – I'm, in fact, going to – you know, talking to a bunch of new members of Congress just elected. Tell them, you ran for a reason. It's really hard. Yeah. Stand up for what you believe in. And you know what? That is what people are looking for. If you should learn nothing from this election. It's, people it, it, want that authenticity. They know they're not always going to agree with you. They but, know that. But they want to know who you are, what you believe. And I, I deeply believe that. And besides, you got to look yourself in the mirror. you got to look history in the mirror. You've got to face your own children mm -hmm. with what you're doing or not doing. It's kind of like, you know, we, we have this choice. You can either go for a little bit of change or you could go for a drastic change. Or you and, can put your head under the desk and hope that, that the yes, storm blows yeah, over. You can also do that. You can right? also do that. But I mean, I guess if there's any lesson to be learned from the way that Donald Trump won, right, is that you can run on significant change that is maybe a little unknown, right? Like we don't know exactly what's going to happen with him, but like you can swing for the fences. You could go, you could change as drastically, you could make it propose as drastic a change as you want to make and people will go there if they agree with that idea. And so these little tiny incremental changes on gun control and gun safety, you got to really go big. I think you really got to go big for these. And so I think you're on the right path. I, well, I, I think you got to believe in what you're fighting for. That too. I mean, honestly, let's that talk too. about it, which is not necessarily true. No, Mr. that's Trump. That's what we want. But take people do want change, yeah. and people are frustrated with gridlock. I will tell you that. I heard that all over my district. I was like, just get, get something, something done. done. Right. And I would say, like, look at these are the things I am getting done. They're like, okay, well, we recognize you're trying. We know you care. You're out there every day, and you know. To some extent, if you you have to both simultaneously swing for the fences and also take the gains that you get sure, as you yes, go, and, course, and lock yeah. them in, yeah. and lock them in as you go. So yeah. it's it's I mean it's a process, but man, you know it's not going to change if we don't try. Switch back to politics now with our good friend, political reporter for MSNBC, Alex Seitzwald, joining us in the studio. Hello, Alex. How are hey, you? Hey, Bill. Good. So, Alex, what's it going to be like for the media under this uh, new administration? Uh, I mean, you know, I think the, uh, the the prison newspaper and the reporter's concentration camp is going to be stellar. You know, the 10-time winning, 10-time Pulitzer Prize winning uh, Sing Sing Gazette is going to be great. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> 
before we get there, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we won't get there. But I don't know. I mean, you know, the, he, there was talk yesterday about rearranging the yeah, uh, the way the White House Correspondents Association works. In fact, uh, Reince Priebus, the uh, incoming chief of staff. Um, well, I was talking to Hugh Hewitt yesterday in his program. Didn't mince any bones about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we, we don't feel compelled to hold uh, uh, daily White House briefings. Here, here he is. You know, even looking at things like the daily, you know, the daily uh, White House briefing from the press secretary, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that things can be done. And, and I can assure you we're looking at that. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. I mean, there's no law. What lo- am I going to do with uh, three hours every day? I can't <laughs> go to the briefing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, there, you know, nothing is sacred in the, the Trump administration and the Trump White House. All these norms and these ways that things have been done for years and years and traditions that have been respected are being reevaluated. And there's no law that requires uh, the, the president to do this. But it comes, you know, in the context of every administration being less accessible to the press and therefore to the public than previous administrations. And I'm guessing we're going to take a giant leap forward on that front with this one. Backwards, I would say. Well, right. Depending on which way you are. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, clearly, President Obama was less accessible, believe it or not, than George W. Bush was. Yep. Or the, uh, the his, he and the people around him and his administration. Uh, I mean, I, I've only been there under President Obama, but the, my colleagues down there tell me they had a lot more access under under W than they did under President Obama, and it's going to be worse under under a, a President Trump. Yeah, and it's natural that you know if you're the president, you don't want pesky reporters running around. But there's usually somebody in your inner circle who can push back on that and can say this is important. You know, both uh, from a Democratic point of view and politically, like uh, Hillary Clinton, when they first came to the White House with Bill Clinton in 92, she wanted to shut down this doorway that leads from the press briefing room to the west wing of the White yeah, House yeah. where huh. reporters can kind of wander through. Right, right. And George Stephanopoulos, who was the press secretary, then said, no way. You know, he, he put the kibosh on that immediately. Who inside Trump's circle is going to be sticking up for the press? I yeah, I don't can't think of anyone. No. Right. Uh, And the question is that uh, uh, Susan Page from USA Today made this point earlier in our program, that they have to realize, one would hope, that the briefings are not just important for reporters or for the American people, but they're important for the administration itself as a vehicle for getting their message out in a very focused, disciplined way every day, where they're really in charge. I mean, they're at the podium. We can ask pesky questions, (laughs) to use your word, right? But ultimately it's their form right i mean it's 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 free you know a a, a place to to spout what you want to say to your talking points to try to uh you know get tough questions that you are anticipating because you're they're, they're going to be out there and trying to you know spin them provide new information to the press uh or talk about things that are not getting covered that you want to be put on the radar trump has obviously with twitter you know taken a, a different approach to that and maybe he feels like he can just get his message out and uh you know do what he needs to do on that approach and i, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something uh, kind of unprecedented and he just calls in as from you know the oval office to fox oh. news and mm-hmm. does phoner interviews uh because you know why not because he can do whatever he wants <laughs> The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This 
is the Bill Press Show. Yeah, a parting shot. All we got is a chance to make the point we made earlier in the show, which is that the big loser in this election turns out to be climate change. Look at it. Donald Trump who says climate change is a hoax on top. And then joined now by Rex Tillerson at State and Rick Perry at Energy and Scott Pruitt at EPA and Ryan Zinke at Interior, all climate change deniers. It is the planet, it is humanity that is going to suffer. Hopefully only for four years. That's it, folks, for today. Come back tomorrow. We'll be looking for you. Have a good one. This is the Bill Press Show.